This is a disclaimer for In the Heat of the Night. This was recorded in June of 2020, about two weeks after George Floyd was murdered. I had my brother come on the podcast, and we really just wanted to explore what we could do uh, as human beings to be better and to stop racist systems that are in place in this country by starting with ourselves. And I think we were both very affected by what was happening in the country and wanted to, to share that. Um, and we acknowledge that like we're just two like white people who don't know what the fuck we're talking about. So um, we have a longer discussion than I think will be normal for this podcast, but I think it's important. I also wanted to point out that the audio quality is not great. So please bear with us. Uh, this was our first Zoom recording for this podcast. And without further ado, here is episode four of Talk Classic to Me in the Heat of the Night. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my friends to talk about classic movies or any other form of old-fashioned media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film In the Heat of the Night from 1967 with my guest and brother, David Greenfield. All right, are we re- how will I know if we're recording? I, I see a little thing up in the top left that says recording. Recording, okay. What an old lady. <laughs> Hello, David. <laughs> Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. Uh, so everyone at home, this is my brother, David. Everybody. The greatest human. And I'm so glad he's here to discuss In the Heat of the Night with me. Um, I had you on because I was thinking about this. I mean, there are so many things going on in the world right now. I... I had to change my movie set list because this was what I felt like called to watch. This is what I wanted to watch, this kind of film. Yeah, yeah this was a very relevant film yes, to watch. Very relevant. And I wanted to specifically watch it with you. I actually talked to our mom about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Yes, I did. So I was like, I don't know who to watch the movie with. Like, you know, what, what do I do? And I was realizing, like, I want to watch it with you because we had the same upbringing. And so mm-hmm. we experienced the same, like, it's like we were raised to not think in any sort of racist way and thought racism like didn't really exist because we didn't see it, but not realizing the systems that we grew up in were pretty much white. Like, yeah, anyway. very white. All right, wait, let's first let's get into the movie. But that's yeah. why I wanted to have you on. I was like, we experience this together so we can talk about like, yeah, the system, how we were like, all of that. Okay, so yeah, we watched In the Heat of the Night starring Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger, David, what were your opening? Oh, it's from 1967. But I said that in the opening, so. <laughs> yeah, David, what were your like first thoughts? We kind of texted a little during the movie. Yeah, like, a little bit, not much. David and I are in different time zones. He is in Michigan, I am in California. Mm-hmm. So David is being very nice and like giving me a lot of his day. So my my first thought was um, uh, that this this cop that we see at the beginning was really creepy. That was my first thought. Um, but outside of that, it, it kind of amazes me how quickly the, um, not the very beginning, but near the beginning when we first meet Tibbs, Officer Tibbs, but you don't know he's an officer. Immediately, the, the, the police officer who knows that there's been a murder, just he goes into this train station, he sees a black man sitting on a bench, yeah. and immediately draws his gun and he's you know sitting there just assuming that this man yes. obviously was the murderer. Not even noticing the situation, not even noticing that this man is sitting like calmly with a suitcase in a train station. Like that's where, that's what people do. Like wearing a nice suit, like not even noticing the situation. 
just noticing the color of someone's skin, period. Right. Yes. And he was in like the same outfit as what somebody later said, why are you wearing white person clothes? Which don't even like get me started. <laughs> but, but like, so the officer walks in, he sees somebody who clearly is dressed up in a, in a suit. And because the man is black, he just assumes, obviously, well, this is not, Even if he wasn't wearing a suit, it doesn't like... Well, I'm not saying that, but I'm just yeah. saying, even despite all of that... Yeah, despite all of matter. the like assimilation tactics, he was right. still... It didn't even matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. So something that I noticed, this was your first time watching it. This was yeah. not my first time watching this. Um, actually, I was surprised because I told you, the first time I saw this all the way through, I think it was in high school, because mm -hmm. I, I was weirdly remembering, they showed this a lot when I was in high school on TV. Um, like on TCM and stuff. And I realized okay. now it's because that was an anniversary year for this film. It's 2002. What, what anniversary? Oh, okay. It would have been like the, what, I can't do math, you do math. That was a 30, 35 year anniversary. Right, the 35th anniversary. So I, I feel like they showed it on TV a lot that year, not just on TCM, but like on AMC and on a bunch of different channels. So that one year, I feel like I saw this movie a bunch. Oh, also Cool Hand Luke, also 1967. They showed that a lot that year too. But I knew who the killer was going in. Right. So I haven't seen this movie in a while. I still remember who the killer was, but it was so interesting to watch from that perspective because I could see all the, they tell you in the beginning, basically, who did it. You were oh, yeah, because that, yeah, that, that guy yeah. was in one of the first scenes, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, the first thing we see is like, it's night, there's a train, it's coming into the station, we hear Ray Charles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that song is awesome. Yeah. His voice is awesome. You know, Music by Quincy Jones. <laughs> I noticed that, I was like, Quincy Jones, I know who you are. <laughs> Famous for music. That's actually one of the first. I took a few yeah. notes on here, and that was literally the first thing I wrote. Music by Quincy Jones. I wrote it too. That's why we're related. We're such <laughs> thorough, thorough note yeah. takers. Can I also just point out that you know you said you watch this all the time on TCM. Clearly, we were in different rooms. Or oh, <laughs> clearly, I, I never paid attention. <laughs> I was thinking this because I remember watching it downstairs on the TV and I was like, I bet David was upstairs watching something else. Like after school, yeah. the two of us, yep. me downstairs because you let me have a good TV because you were really nice. Mm -hmm. But also I was probably watching better shit than you were. Let's just be real. I'm sorry. Who knows? In the heat of the night, probably better yeah. than like around the horn. Let's just yeah. say that. Um, <laughs> probably. probably. <laughs> just saying. But yeah, I, yeah, I was thinking that. I was like, I bet you David was upstairs like while I was watching this. Mm -hmm. um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> so yeah but in the open so we see like they set it up uh we see what i love is um someone when he gets off when Sidney Poitier gets off the train there's like a white person that sets up a stool for him and he steps down onto the stool mm -hmm. and onto the ground and has his like nice luggage and just gives you so much information just like that little bit of screenwriting gives you so much information i love it but then this is yeah. what i was getting to okay so one of the first things we see is the fly on uh that calendar yes i did notice that i thought that was disgusting that fly and mm -hmm. being so happy like when he got it and i'm like that's the fuck that's the murderer right <laughs> also oh i should say we're gonna give spoilers here the whole thing is watch the movie first then listen to this after also mm -hmm. this movie was released a long time ago so if you don't know this that's kind of on you yeah so yes yeah, included with amazon prime Thank you for bringing that up. I always want to say what we watch these on. The platform we watch this on was Amazon Prime. It's free on Amazon Prime. So go for it. Watch it. It's a really good movie. But then we also should say that it's a really good movie. Okay, but yeah, so get that right away. Like we, he's, we see his personality, but what I think is really interesting that I noticed this time is that it's like inverted. They take our views on what, what we think this police officer is going to be. Yeah. So the first thing we see is like this guy in the diner killing the fly. And then we see him interacting with the police officer and he does not have a lot of respect for the officer and almost immediately the officer tries to assert himself and says, 
don't call me Sam, I'm, you know, Officer Wood or whatever, right. you know, he tries to assert himself in that way. So watching from our perspective and like the guys hiding the pie from him and like fooling him kind of, right. from our perspective, we are going to take what we know about this movie and what we know about white police. And we're going to be like, oh, that white police guy probably sucks. He's probably racist. And we don't think twice about the diner guy. We kind of right. think like we would be the diner guy, right. not understanding that the diner guy is like also the messed up person in the system. Like he's, right. he's our killer. Right. <laughs> he's right. Also racist. He's going to show us that later, but it's, it's so interesting how they set that up and like set up our expectations with that. I thought yeah. watching it. I didn't think that necessarily. I just kind of thought the diner guy was just going to be some throwaway character. Yeah. Um, right. You don't think it's twice about it. He's just first. He's right. fooling on the officers. But later on, we're like, oh, no, he's just a terrible human. Yeah. He told us that he was a terrible human, and we just took what we already know right. and ignored him. <laughs> right. I mean, he's just a diner guy, right? I mean, he's just a... He's like having fun fooling on the racist cops who, right. oh, my gosh, still are racist. But guess what? You can be a racist cop and be a racist <laughs> diner owner. <laughs> right. <laughs> Crazy, right? <laughs> oh, who knew? But, yeah, this movie... It was hard to watch sometimes. Do you want to? Yeah, I know I was watching it. I was kind of noting it's just the same theme of trying to show how Tibbs is trying to, first he has, he has to get out of the situation of being essentially, you know, accused of murder for no reason other than being black yeah. and, you know, getting out of that and then kind of being forced to work on this case. And then not listening to him anyway. So he right. wants to work on this, doesn't want to work on it, is as like kind and calm as humanly possible in this situation. Everyone yeah. around him is rude all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't, they choose not to believe him over and over again. Right. And you're like, what? Right. Well, you know, one of the notes that I took took on on here uh, was uh, Gillespie, Rod Steiger's. Is that right, Steiger? Rod Steiger, yeah. Rod Steiger. His character, I wrote, <laughs> Gillespie has got to be the worst officer. <laughs> right. But he's still better than what would have been there before, which is sad. That line where right. they say, like, the man before you would have shot him for self-defense for slapping right. that white man who slapped him first. Right. Like, so he, he's, like, progressive right. for that town. <laughs> yeah, which is saying something. But he, as soon as he thought he had something, that was the answer. That was it. It was done. Oh, my God. Case closed. We're done. To any other evidence. Yeah. Just as soon as he decides, yep, this is it. And Tibbs, yeah. um, no, I have no. Right. <laughs> no. Well, for starters, have... this this dude's left-handed, and the guy who killed this yeah. other dude had to have been right-handed, so it really doesn't make sense. But also, don't you think, what I kept thinking, too, is like a masculine fragility, like the toxic masculine thing that we talk about, which, again, toxic masculinity is different from masculinity, right? Mm, toxic right. hot chocolate is different from hot chocolate. Do right. you want to drink hot chocolate? Yes. Do you want to drink toxic hot chocolate? No. And exactly. so like this idea that like you can't admit you're wrong or that ugh, this ego driven bullshit. Mm -hmm. One of the coolest moments with Sidney Poitier as like a character is when he goes, I was focused on Endicott the whole time because of personal reasons. How advanced is that as a human, as a man? Because mm -hmm. none of the other characters are able to do that, to no. like speak that truth. No, not at all. And he is. Like, what an evolved human. <laughs> yeah. What an evolved man. Right. For so many reasons. Right. He was able to admit, listen, I was looking at this guy because I didn't like this guy. It's like, I wanted to believe he was the killer. Yeah. But yeah. I was able to take a step back and say, wait a minute, the evidence it does not point that direction. Yeah. Whereas everybody else won't do that, even though this whole time, 
They've constantly been admitting to the wrong person. They've suspected Gibbs wrongly. Like they don't ever say anything like that. He's right. the only person that can admit right. he's wrong. Yeah. yeah. By the um, way, uh, I was going to ask you if you had any tidbits on uh, the director, Norman Jewison. David, you came so prepared. I saw in the... <laughs> I saw at the beginning, it said directed by Norman Jewison. And I, was yeah, I, like, I was like, this guy's got to be somebody. I mean, this, this film won, what, Best Picture? Best Clearly, picture. like, his career had to have gone somewhere after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, you're correct. Norman Jewison directed Fiddler on the Roof, a film that we are very familiar with because we're Jewish people. Yeah. Yeah. How, did you, you watch it a bunch as a kid? I feel like I watched it a bunch. I definitely saw Fiddler on the yeah. Roof. I'm sure you probably saw it more than I did. I'm sure I did. <laughs> you probably also saw it on stage. and a, I did. I saw which it. I think I have too, but I don't know if I've seen it as much as you. Yeah, he directed, um, yes, you're very astute, David. Um, Norman Jewison directed Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, he directed this. He directed Moonstruck, I'm pretty sure, the Cher film. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. He directed, what else? Yeah. Oh, he, he directed the original Thomas Crown Affair, which I actually oh. don't like very much. I, I don't think I ever saw the original. I only saw the, the, the other one. Yeah, the newer one. Garbage. Steve McQueen's attractive. Faye Dunaway's cool. It's <laughs> It's basically like, look, I'm going to screw over this powerful woman just because I can. There's no yeah. other reason. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I forgot he directed um, Only You which is, um, you know my friend Ashley, that's like her favorite movie. And it's kind of a weird movie, but it has a line that's like, I would kill tigers for you or something like that. Something like that. Um, and it's pretty, she quotes it sometimes. So that's my personal connection. It's like, ah. <laughs> I was gonna say, I do not know that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's with Marissa Tomei and Robert Downey Jr. And you want it to be really good because it's got a good cast, but he was definitely like in a drug induced moment when it was filmed, um. you can tell. It's cute. The very pre-Iron Man days. Very pre-Iron Man. We're talking like 1994 here. But yeah, so Norman Jewison is a pretty skilled director. I love his camera work. That's something that I think is cool about him. And I know in Fiddler on the Roof, at least, one of the cool things he did was he put, to make it look more old-fashioned, he put pantyhose in front of the camera lens to give it like this soft, like browned look, like a more old-fashioned look. And you couldn't tell it was pantyhose? I mean, I, mean, no. I didn't know. No. <laughs> But yeah, they have like a, a shot, like a uh, a picture of the camera covered, and it's so cool. That's uh, cool. Yeah, no, I, I think he's he's pretty cool dude. Mm. Um, so yeah, we got. I don't know much about him personally though. I, what if he like did something terrible, and I was like, he's a cool dude. Like, yeah. I, I don't know much about him personally. Mm. He could have me too'd someone, or I, I should look into that before I say. <laughs> I like Fifth on the Roof, and I like Moonstruck. So. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> You're like, he's made some good movies. And I'm like, those are both like feministish films, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like I think he's not a monster. Okay. So. <laughs> just gonna keep our fingers crossed on that one. Uh, I just noted with the town because I wanted to look it up and I just realized I forgot to look it up. Is Sparta, Mississippi, a real place? Do you think? No, it's not. I actually did look that up. It's not. You're such a responsible guest. Thank you. This is what happens when I finish watching it like 20 minutes before you. I know. I should mention. <laughs> so we started watching it at the same time. And then I had to text David and I said, look, I keep stopping it to take notes. And also because I get really frustrated and need like a minute. Yeah. And oh, also I got a delivery while it happened and I couldn't resist opening the door because I needed to. On podcast live, this is my real life. <laughs> um, I ordered an old-fashioned telephone, and it just came in the mail. Oh, really? Yeah, because you know I was telling you I wanted to get like a rotary phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that actually came today. Came today. Well, oh, we were watching the film, so I was like, I need a minute, and I like, opened the phone. And it's really cool, and I 
Mm. Did that a bunch. And then you're playing with it for a while. For a couple minutes. <laughs> then I went back to that actually fits in really nicely with this podcast. Classic movies and... Also, NPR classic made fun phone. It said that that's like the latest thing that people are doing. And I was like, oh, no, I'm a hipster statistic. Don't tell me. And I was like, no, I already purchased my phone. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make I bought it before it was cool. Yeah, I did it before you guys. Anyway, so I have one now, and I'm pretty excited oh, about it. And one more time, exactly. I'm going to make some pretend phone calls and be like, hello, darling. Like, you know, it's fun. Yeah. So, oh, and I wanted to look up the screenwriter, too. Did you happen to look up the screenwriter? I did. I didn't look much into him. The only fun fact that I had about him was that he was, he was born in Detroit. Cool, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I should, I should have looked him up. I did, clearly did so much research before this. It's, I, me setting up tech for like an hour and being like, I don't think yeah. I did it right. So this will be a fun thing to listen yeah. to. Yeah, okay. I tried not to look like too much up, but I clicked on some of the people. I appreciate still. Like, I think you did a great amount. Oh, yeah. and I wanted to ask you, there were some things where you're like, I was confused and I want to clear up this yeah. what, what were the things that like... So one of the things, and I actually have it written out on here, was how does Tibbs know about Endicott, the guy who owns the plantation? I feel uh, like they just all of a sudden went to his plantation one day and I had no idea how he knew about him. So you know the scene with the wife where they, remember he goes, he goes to um, talk to the wife and the, the other like man that runs the company? Right, the mayor or whatever. The other guy, not the mayor. Yeah. There's like a oh. running the company guy. And oh, okay. Like, yeah, yeah. Doesn't have any enemies, and they're like the only one we have is Endicott. Oh, clearly I missed that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I do actually want to talk about her. Hold on, I got to Sterling. Um, what's his name? Sterling Silifant. What a silly, silly name. Detroit born. He wrote the Towering Inferno. It looks like he wrote Charlie. I okay. So he, I mean, he's got some chops. If if nothing else, he won an Oscar for uh, for this movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, he definitely wrote The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. So, like, the disaster films of the 70s, he wrote two of, like, the prolific ones. The big ones, yeah. Okay, good to know. Right. When I say yeah, those things, does that mean anything to you when I say The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon I've heard of the. I've heard of The Towering Inferno. I don't know anything about it. Um, Poseidon, I, I, The Poseidon Adventure, I, I, I've never seen it, but I've seen, I actually have seen parts of it. It's, like, every once in a while you see it on TV or something. I know about it and I've seen parts of it I know it's like Gene Hackman and whatnot but I don't know okay. anything else I was just curious. about I was like have you heard of it yes you have I know that it got remade in like 2006 or something okay Ooh, I really really hated when Sam picks up Tibbs and he starts calling him boy and mm -hmm. then something I noticed later in the film was Rod Steiger calls Sam boy and I was like ooh, a boy full circle yeah. Ooh, mm -hmm. good. you deserve that boy Sam yep. <laughs> like very much because it really bothered me like you know it's it's so frustrating we've already talked about it where it's like him sitting there doing mm. exactly what he's supposed to be doing it's it's white privilege when people say white privilege isn't a thing I think they just don't understand the words we're using white privilege white yeah. privilege means for anyone who does not know I'm sure many of you do know it means that you are given the benefit of the doubt because of your skin color period yeah. it doesn't mean that you're like given a million dollars when you're born it means right. <laughs> that, it, though sometimes it could, let's be real. Yeah. Um, it, it simply means that you were given the benefit, the benefit of the doubt in any situation because of the color of your skin. A great yeah. example of this is the white men that brought AK-47s to the Michigan Capitol and nothing happened. And like black protesters for Black Lives Matter getting shot with rubber bullets just for standing. That's a great yeah. example of white privilege, okay? Yeah. So a white a cop showing up and seeing a black person sitting there on a night a murder has committed and arresting him immediately without even questioning him mm -hmm. is an example and versus like, yeah. if he had seen a white person 
um, right. doing the same thing, he would probably behave differently. That's that's what white privilege yeah. is. And that's what we mean when we say white privilege. Right. Okay. That was the one. That was one of the main things. Was just the fact that he was sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Did not look. Did not remotely look suspicious in any way, shape, or form. And what kills me now is like, I bet you in today's society, he might have been shot for that. In the same way, remember when um, Endicott slaps Tibbs and sl Tibbs mm -hmm. slaps him back and they said, you should have shot him in self-defense. That was even yeah. like, I bet you today, that could have been him just sitting at the bus stop and they would have been like, oh, he scared us. And so we needed to shoot him in self-defense, right. you know? Like, right. it would, I think well, it would have even been further today. The other thing about that scene that really caught me too was the fact that Endicott was openly saying, "You." what's wrong with you, you should have shot him. But on top of that, Endicott, did you see the look on his face during that scene? He looked like he was about to cry. And you look at him and it's like, he didn't just slap somebody. He slapped, technically, he slapped a police officer. Who was investigating him. Who was investigating him for murder. Yeah. He slaps him and the thought process was, I, it doesn't matter who you are, because you're black, it doesn't matter. I can yeah. slap you and you're not worth as much as I am which is so messed up. Well, that's, okay, so I do wanna to get to that because something I noticed about Endicott was he's basically running a modern plantation. He has yeah. like black people in the fields picking cotton. He has mm -hmm. that racist lawn jockey. When you walk in the front door, he has an African-American, um, or I shouldn't say African-American. A, a black butler in mm -hmm. like a white coat who has to be like deferential to him. And um, what I thought was so interesting about that scene is when Tibbs first enters, the most racist human in the whole film is the only person that calls Tibbs Mr. Tibbs. It blew my mind because I knew it was coming. And I just went, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Is that the first time someone's called him Mr. Tibbs this whole film? It is. And it's going to be the person that is the most disgusting. Well, one, one of the people that's the most, yeah. the most disgusting people are the people with the Confederate flags in their car that are gonna go yeah. hurt yeah. for literally no reason. So yeah. I do think it was important to point out that they made a point of highlighting the Confederate flag on the, the front bumper of the car every time somebody was coming after Tibbs, anytime, essentially not, I don't, I don't know if you wanna see the bad guys of the film, but guys who were obviously trying to harm. Uh, oh, bad guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they weren't like the bad guy that was being yeah, like, yeah. like that was being, yeah. the they're right. Like, they're villains, but they're not like, they were, the right. They weren't like the main villain that was trying to get caught for murder. They're not like the Green Goblin. They're like the, <laughs> the, right. they're not like Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. They're like the people that go with Gaston to kill the beast. Right. Fair point. So what, what a comparison, Sarah. What a comparison. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. Um, and you came yeah. up with that right off the top of your head, too. I you know. Your um, film metaphor. Um, but, you, what you reminded me of is like this debate now that people are having about the Confederate flag and how they're like, it just means freedom. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. No, no. it doesn't mean that. It means, wait, I wrote down in my notes because I got so upset about yeah. it. <laughs> What the Confederate, what I felt like what the Confederate flag really means. Oh, I wrote, the Confederate flag symbolizes racism. It stands for owning black people, period. So um, yeah, it symbolizes racism. What that flag stands for is owning people, is owning people of color, is owning black people. Um, and like, you don't get to change that. That's what that no. means. Like no. the Nazi flag symbolizes people killing Jews. That's what it's about, yeah. okay? Right. You know what they did in Germany? They got rid of Nazi flags. Yeah. You're not allowed to even jokingly do anything related to Nazis there because yeah. they understand the importance of that. And so here, when I see the Confederate flag, I understand what you're telling me about yourself. Yeah. I mean, not like I've seen it 
in California. Like, yeah. not like I've seen well, it really in Michigan. I feel like no. the first time I ever saw it was when we went to Dollywood when we were kids. Do you remember that? Were, so I yeah. I ever saw the Confederate flag. Yeah, I do. And I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I thought, no, people don't really. Right. Because what you're telling you know me what, though? the Confederate flag is you're racist. That's what you're saying to me. Yeah, right, right. I think and, black people should be owned by me. That's what you're right, saying. Right, right. And there are people in Michigan who have Confederate flags. I mean, there's a lot of people up here even who have them. Not like in Detroit per se, but, you know, when you start getting out to the suburbs a little bit, there are certain areas that are, you know, that people do. Like that's newer, though, like in the last 10 years or so since people have been getting a little more um like emboldened in their racism or do you feel it's like possi- it's possible i don't feel like you saw it as much before before then but i mean i was also younger then so i don't know if i paid attention to it or what exactly but like i feel like a lot of people like you're talking about the protesters at the capitol earlier in this podcast i i, I don't know this with 100 percent certainty but i'm i would bet you that there was a number of people who had confederate flags at that protest for the for the covid stuff yeah. And the thing I'm thinking of too is like a lot of the places we went growing up wouldn't have been places where we would see that. Like the town we grew up in, we would never see that there. I'm like, should I even say it on the, I don't know if I should say it publicly where we're from. I don't know. Where Metro Detroit. In the Metro Detroit area. <laughs> um, the town where we come from would not ever have that, you know? And yeah. like where the places we would visit would be like Detroit or Ann Arbor. You're not going to see that kind of stuff there. No. Like we weren't driving out to rural Michigan pretty much ever, were we? No. I don't remember that. Not really. So I feel like, yeah, we weren't in places that felt like that. And we were raised with like, racism is bad, period. Not understanding that we were also raised in a pretty white area uh, with all the things that have been going on. I have been looking inward and wanting to change and be better. And I just see it. I, I go, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's just, that's just reality of where we're from. And, and we, we weren't raised in areas where there was much opportunity to have friends outside of you know, outside of being white. Yeah. And I'm horrified right now because I'm like, I probably sound ridiculous now. I'm just trying to be a human that like wants to yeah. be better and wants to change these horrible systems for the future. Yeah. <laughs> and this film represents all this. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, the, and the film doesn't represent it. It constantly represents it over okay. and over and over. You don't ever really get a moment of like a break. Like there's never a break. There's always, I mean, even watching this film, I kept thinking to myself, like, why is Tibbs, why is he even trying at this point? Like he really wanted to solve this case. More, I think more so than anybody else there, and he didn't even live there. And he really wanted to solve this. And I was sitting here going, like, every time he tries to solve this, there's always somebody coming after him, like, trying to kill him or, like, hurt him or whatever it might be. And I'm like, why? like, I would not want to be there anymore. So that's a lot of credit to him for wanting to be there. it towards the end. And I did wonder, do you think it is because of what Rod Steiger says to him? Like, you want to prove us all wrong? Do you think mm-hmm. that was true? Or do you think that was just, I felt like he, he felt like he had to solve it in order to go home. And yeah. what I did notice about this film that I wanted to bring up with you was mm-hmm. that even well-meaning people, even well-meaning white people made it out of his control for him to go home, right? Yes. So like when they finally let him go and he's like, I just want to go home. And they're like, no, you can't. You got to help us. And he's like, right. the person's left-handed. And they're like, we're arresting you. Right. <laughs> right. So there's that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I love the scene with um, Mrs. Colbert because she is a really cool character. Like, mm-hmm. she sees what's going on. Right. Um, the scene the scene where he comforts her, what a great scene. Because it, yeah, it was a great scene. I'm not sure if she won't let him comfort her because he's black. Yeah. But you see it's not because he's black. You see it's because she's so, like, she's like, don't touch she, me. She was just given this horrible news that she didn't know her husband was dead until he and told he her. He her hand and they hold, that he, like, is supporting her and they're holding each other's hand. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah. Like, what? And that she, is a beautiful moment. Right. 
And she was the one that said, I want him on. I don't care about these other people. I want him yeah. on the case. Well, here's the problem with that. So mm-hmm. I, I did write down like, good work, Karening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I know our mom hates that. Our mom is yeah. named Karen and she's the coolest, like most badass lady around and is very much not a Karen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but <laughs> she's like uh, an anti-Karen <laughs> goes to the mayor and is like, this is what I witnessed. This is wrong. That was pretty cool. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think that was very cool of her. But yeah. then on the flip side, she's like, I only want him working on the case. I'm like, girl, let him go home. If you let it be up to him. Right. Right. <laughs> I agree with that. Although in her mind, she's probably thinking the only thing that matters to her is, is that her husband's murder needs to be solved. Yeah. But that's kind of at the expense. That's of not her. fair, but it's like, she didn't do it. I don't think she did that from a race perspective. I think she did it from a just this guy and he knows what he's doing and I want him to do it. And I, and this guy obviously is somebody who has a lot of power who was killed. I um, agree with that, but that still puts her whiteness over his right to choose. Like he should get a say if he wants to solve this case or not. And yeah. it takes away his say, I think. And one other thing that pissed me off too was his boss wouldn't let him go. And I'm like, his boss is in Philadelphia. His boss mm-hmm. is probably a white dude. His yeah. boss is not taking into account that he's leaving his expert in homicide in an incredibly yeah. racist southern town where he could be murdered and almost is numerous times right. for being black. So That's the, that is the one thing I was thinking about, though, was, and maybe this is based off, if this is based off a true story or anything else, then my bad, but, I don't um, care. again, but, yeah, <laughs> but, um, but it didn't seem like they would want him to stay down there and help with the murder down in Mississippi, when there's probably other things happening in Philadelphia that they would actually are paying him to do and they'd want his time up there. You know, because then I started thinking, like, does this guy have vacation time? Like, is he being paid to do this? Is he, you know, and like how he was being demonized for his pay at the beginning, too, was something else. I wrote down the line. The line was like, a colored man don't make that kind of money. And I just, I paused mm-hmm. and I was like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, Oh my God, you monster. I couldn't believe that. Like, I mean, I could believe it, but like, I was yeah. like, it's none of your business. Like, that's one of the reasons that the officer even brought him down to the precinct was because, because of all the money in his wallet. Well, look at all this money in his wallet. He must have murdered him and took all his money and stole it. Again, her. not taking into account, like, how does this person look? How are they standing and sitting? You know, like, they look very respectable. They are in a nice suit. Look at that nice luggage. Like, yeah. look at that great, like, his haircut, too. He, he looks so good. <laughs> yeah. He looks he was, so sharp. He's like, very positive. He looks like this polished. Classy. Yeah, he's, like, the classiest, coolest, calmest. Yeah. Also, did you notice everyone else was, like, dripping sweat? And he's wearing, like, his suit and staying cool as he come Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. But also, ooh, that also brings me to this point, which is that, like, everyone else is allowed to get mad, get angry, get upset. All the white people losing their temper left and right. And when I say white people, I do mean the white men, because the women weren't really there. <laughs> there are two women. I was going to say, this is mostly men. Yeah. But they're losing their temper left and right. And he's, like, not allowed to, because you know that if he did, it wouldn't be okay. And that's messed up, too. That's well, like- that goes back to that scene when they, when him and, um, and Endicott, thank you, I was, yeah, um, slap each other. Endicott, obviously, first. Um, obviously, because he- the one, time, the one time he lost his temper, and they're saying he should be killed. And I don't think that was him losing his temper, David. I think that was him showing that person, you are not allowed to treat me this way. Oh, okay. Maybe the only time he lost his temper would have been when he was, like, blaming Endicott. Or, you mm-hmm. know, when they were in the field, and mm-hmm. he was like, no, it's this guy. 
And maybe yeah. when he said, they call me Mr. Tibbs, which yeah. is the greatest line. One of the greatest. That, that line, we can't forget about that one. Also, wasn't there like a Disney movie or another movie there where there's a character that's like, they call me Mr. something. You know, I was thinking about that and I thought of it. There Mr. is a Pig. It's from Lion King. They is call it? me Mr. Pig. That's what it is. That's, right? you know what, I forgot about that one. The other one I was going to say was the movie um, Unbreakable. Mm -hmm. Samuel Jackson goes, they call me Mr. Glass, yeah. not the Lion King, although that Lion King definitely. Right? Didn't he say that? He did, yeah. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> a lot of Disney. The there was another thing I wanted to say about that scene that I wrote down. I didn't get a full quote, and I actually rewound this three or four times to try and get the rest of the quote, and I could never understand what Endicott said, okay. so I just stopped rewinding. I Clearly, I could have done it for 20 straight minutes and been okay, but. Yeah, <laughs> you would have been fine. <laughs> but, um, he said, they were talking about uh, the orchids that he was growing in his, in his place. And he said, referring to the flower, he said, like the Negro, they need care and feeding and another word. I don't know what it was. They yeah, need care. I, and I wrote out the rest of that line. And that takes time. And that line stood out to me. I said, I cannot believe he said that. Like, just. They, cultivating. Was the, I wrote growth. Was, oh, the word was cultivating? Yeah. I think. Okay. I, I, kept, I listened for it over and over and over, and I could not hear the words. So I said, whatever. But yeah, when he said that, I got, I was shocked. I couldn't, even though I knew he was racist, that like. It was just, that was so disgusting. And it's, it's you just want to put a mirror up to that person and be like, mm -hmm. repeat that, but about yourself. Like, you would yeah. be cultivating. <laughs> like, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I, just the, the, the artifice there, too, of like someone who knows exactly what they're doing, but thinks it's okay. And yeah. the way he treats him with this respect and then is like, I'm going to put you in your place with it. Right. It was disgusting. Right, right. Because yeah. we can see these two men. And we see right. that of these two men, Sidney Poitier is like the better human by far. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's no question. Yeah, that was disgusting. That was a truly disgusting and gross line. And it showed us exactly who that person was. And you were right. The thing that struck me about that scene too was when he left and he was going to cry. All I could think was like, oh, your fragility, your poor, fragile, masculine ego. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're held up by putting other people down. You have no mm. self-validation at all. Oh, yeah. like that was what I <laughs> like, how sad. I was like, if you just could yeah. like go to therapy. Mm. But I thought, I thought that was that whole scene that was Endicott. I think we keep coming back to this scene as we're talking about it because it's a very powerful scene. It was scene. perfectly written, I think. Yeah. I think it shows Gillespie's growth as a character too. Because even now watching it, I, I feel like when I was younger, you felt for him a little more because you're mm -hmm. like, oh, he sees him as a human in the end. But now when you're watching it, you're like, I don't have patience for that. Yeah. Good for you. You see the truth in the end that this person is also a human and probably like a much smarter and better human than you are. Right. But he can't let him off the hook in any scene either. When it's just the right. two of them, he is consistently, in every scene, putting him in his place, even when they're drinking right. together. And yeah. Oh, I actually have a line from, I have a line from that, that oh. scene near the end when he's talking, yeah. But before, I, just before we leave the Endicott scene, I do want to say, when he stands up for him by not doing anything, that's a huge moment too. Yeah. So that, that was great yeah. to see. His initial reaction wasn't to, I can't believe this guy just slapped you. He should be in jail for this. Like, right. That man very much deserves to be slapped. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Poitier was everyone. Right. right. <laughs> you can just feel it. Yeah. Um, um, anyway. But I, I was just going to say, he did say, um, Gillespie said to him in the drinking scene, near the end of the movie, don't get smart with me, black boy. Because it's just like, oh my God, have you, have you learned nothing? Is it, do you really need to do this every single time? Sonny Poitier was making a very astute observation, which is like, I am as lonely as you are. 
Do right. you see how we're both humans living a yeah, similar right. lifestyle? And right. he, it's like he, at every turn, he couldn't accept that. People just right. can't seem to accept. <laughs> well, that's what's so funny is, is in so many ways, Gillespie and, and, and um, Tibbs are so similar. They're, you know, they're, they're both probably late 30s, early 40s, somewhere in there. They both aren't married. They're both a police officers, their job. They just do it in different cities. And so you're right. That's kind of what he was trying to say was, why is it okay for you to ask me if I'm lonely, but I can't say I'm as lonely as you are. We're, we're essentially the same person when it comes to that. Only that, though, because, again, Sidney Poitier is... Right, 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 right. Just from that standpoint of, like, in terms of loneliness, they're the same in terms of they don't really have a... Somebody um, else because of their career. They're not married because of their careers. And, like, you know, Tibbs is an expert, you know? I mean, you know, that was all the other thing I was going to say, too, was we were talking about, um, you know, why he was staying there and why he kept doing this. And I think one of the reasons is because I think when you're an expert in something and you, you know you have so much knowledge, you feel like it's like a puzzle for him. He wants to like, he wants to solve that puzzle. David, um, you're 100% right. And all I could think was like, you're right. When you're an expert in classic movies, you just have right. to make a podcast and talk about <laughs> right. it. Right. You just got to talk. He's, you got to do it. You, you have to share it. with the world. Me and Sidney Poitier are not the same. Let's put that out there. <laughs> I am not the same as an expert in homicide, but that was what I thought in my head. Oh, oh, so the guy, what's the guy's name that does the killing? He has like a very basic name. Yeah, I thought his name was Ralph or something. Yeah, something generic and boring. Like, mm -hmm. one of those names. And I'm yeah. um, sorry if you're one of those people and you're like, I'm special. You are special. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just your name isn't. Um, like, just boring names. Yeah. They're playing Foul Owl on the Prowl. And I was like, they're telling us who he is. If you don't know that he's the killer, he's reveling in it right now. If you listen to the lyrics in the song, mm -hmm. if you listen to what the song is about, he's reveling in a song about himself because he knows he did this. He committed right. the crime, he's getting away with it. I just think that's so cool that they put yeah. that in there. Well, not just from killing the fly, like not that killing a fly is bad, but that's like heartlessly killing a fly is like, oh, you're an animal killer. That means you're a killer. You know, those kind of tropes. Right. But then when we find out he's super racist, when he wants for Sidney Poitier, that's like strike two of the- Right. What's interesting about that scene is I, so often in movies that all that stuff goes over my head. I don't pay attention to that stuff. And that stuff so often is kind of a giveaway. Film writers, I think, and directors try to lump stuff like that in there. So then you look back and you're like, oh, they're playing this song or they're doing this. I didn't know what that song was when, they was when he was playing on the jukebox. I was paying attention like to just him watching the conversation going on between the police officers outside. Well, and I will say, I don't think that song is a famous song or anything, but I do remember, at least in high school, when that song came on, everybody in the class started cracking up because it was so silly. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's a foul owl on the brow. Like, <laughs> silly, right? Right. So we all started laughing in the classroom. So I remembered it because of that. I feel like maybe I noticed these things more because I knew who the killer was. But we've talked about this too. Like that's one of my specialties. Like, I sometimes feel like a movie detective yeah. where I love to try to, I mean, I'm not always right, but I love to try to get all the clues in general. Right. That's part of what I like to do. That's right. why these things are fun for me. And I feel like mm -hmm. that's why I like watching movies with you because we're both willing to talk about those things. But like you, you appreciate things and you also come yeah. in with like an intelligent point of view and you want to mm -hmm. know things about films too. Like you will IMDb after a film just like I will and we will, yes. you know, share notes and it's fun. But I just want to point out, I never do that in a theater. You should never get your phone out in a theater. Oh, thank All you. All I got to say. Is that my PSA for the day? I am with David. We are both very staunch in this. <laughs> you do not talk in a movie theater. You do not pull out your phone in a movie theater. The world is not about you. Yeah.
okay. Yeah, movie theater is an opportunity for you to get away for a few hours, and you don't have to deal with all, you know other people for a few hours. And it's not that hard. <laughs> now, if you're at the theater with somebody and you want to whisper to them really quickly, like I don't understand what just happened, that's just good. do it that's very good. quietly. That's all I ask. That's not like talking. I was yeah. actually thinking about this the other day. Do you remember when we saw Spider-Man 2 and there were very rude boys sitting next to us that were like talking and I had to mm-hmm. turn to them and be like, shut up. And they were just yeah. so mean about it and they kept talking. <laughs> Do you remember yeah. that? Yes. Now I would have been like, excuse me, please, kind sirs. Would you terribly mind? Like I probably would have done that now. Yeah. But 16 year old me was like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to watch a movie. This is Spider-Man 2, okay? He's taking his mask off. This is a big deal. They're going to know his identity. Oh, man, we're funny. So it's supposed to be really hot, and it's supposed to be summer, right? Mm -hmm. It's clearly shot in the fall. (laughs) The trees were all like, there were almost no leaves on them, and Mm -hmm. there were red colors on the trees, and there was a scene where they were outside of the diner at night when Sam was taking them on his route and puffs of air were coming out of their mouth because it was so cold. I did not notice that. I kept thinking, I was like, it's not hot. You're You're like, this is summer in Mississippi. You will never see breaths of air more than like, (laughs) I've never been to Mississippi in the summer. I shouldn't, I should say. You're right, Sam. I'm assuming you'll never see breaths of air in the summertime in Mississippi. But, um, you know, I actually did read on Wikipedia that uh, this movie was filmed in Illinois. Stop it, really? I didn't know that. Production, I believe in the production section of Wikipedia, it said it was filmed in Sparta, Illinois. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. And apparently Sidney Poitier was nervous about filming below the Mason-Dixon line, which can you blame him, especially in the 1960s. But they did film a few scenes in, in Tennessee. I forgot which ones, but some, I think the scene where they were trying to catch the first guy, you know, the, the first guy who was left-handed and he was running across the bridge. I think that scene was filmed in like Tennessee or something. Check Wikipedia just to make sure I could be wrong on that, but there were some scenes that were filmed there. Well, David, thanks for bringing that to the table. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. And that made me wonder if it was called Sparta, Mississippi, because they filmed it in Sparta, Illinois. But this was based on a book, and I don't know what the the town in the book was called. You're a very well-researched guest. Do you want to share anything else that you read or that you know about the... I I didn't read a whole lot. I only read Wikipedia before this. I didn't didn't want to do too much research. I just like to do a little bit, because that's who I am. But I didn't, I don't think there was really any other information I can provide on that. Well, I want to circle back around to like the scene where we're afraid for his life, but there was something else. Oh Which God. one? The, both of them. Um, <laughs> but wait, remember when we said um, you read the Wikipedia because you weren't sure about certain things? Did we cover all the things you weren't sure about? Do you want to share any of them? Um, people might feel the same way. You know, I, I do have something. How did Mr. Tibbs know that that officer like took a different turn on his route? How did he know that? He knew it because, um, remember when he was talking to the guy in the jail and he was mm-hmm. talking about the girl that's naked each night. Remember? So he was talking yeah. about he had taken that girl out and nothing happened, but he took mm-hmm. that girl out and Sam, that officer was there in the bushes waiting. So when she was mm-hmm. like gonna, you know, like take her clothes off, the officer was like, no, and pulled in. Remember that story? Yeah. In that story, he talks about how she likes to stay at home each night and not wearing any clothes. He knew that Sam was a fan of this woman and followed her, basically. Right. Because he was aware of her actions then, he probably... Okay. That was probably... probably I didn't know how Miss Tribbs knew that was his house. Uh, That was her house, I should say. But, um... Yeah, you're right. I I don't know who he knew that was her. Maybe at one point he said where she lived or something. uh, There was a deleted scene I needed. He knew from that character. Also an interesting character in terms of like, you know, he can't handle that man's hands on him. And yeah. yet this man is the man that's going to save your life. They only respect him once they know he's a cop. 
if he had right. not been a cop, he, he would have been probably killed. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was my big thing from this movie was literally this whole this whole movie just exists because there was a, a police officer who sees a black man sitting on a bench and says, I bet you he murdered him and takes him in. And then they find out he's a cop. Otherwise, this would have been a whole other movie if he was like visiting his mom and he was any other job, if he, you know, right. like. Except yeah, if, well, that's the other thing. If he was any other job, he'd probably be dead. And that's so, so, so messed up. Or if not dead, he would be on trial and would have been convicted for murder. With no evidence. I don't understand as like, <laughs> so I should say, I mean, we were both again raised, we were raised in the North, right? Yeah. And yeah. I hate to say it, we do kind of have this mindset sometimes about the South because in our minds, like that's where all the racist stuff really happened, but it didn't obviously. Mm -hmm. A lot of racist stuff happened in the North. What we get taught about is the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. From like our perspective growing up, yeah, we kind of did view the South as like a racist place where bad stuff happened and it seems absolutely ridiculous because there's no reason. There's no other right. reason other than you want to be better than someone somehow. So you've decided that your skin color is better than another person's skin color. Right. And you're going to kill them for that? I, yeah. So yeah. Again, that was the mindset we kind of grew up with. Yeah. We're changing this. <laughs> like, yeah. Obviously, like, there was a lot of racism that happened in the North and also like racism is everywhere and we all need to be better. But that, right. yeah, the, the Southerners are not wrong. I do feel like we kind of grew up with that idea. Do you feel well, like that? I mean, just a quick story. Um, okay. Yeah, I went to Austin, Texas last year for a day essentially. So one of the things I did was I visited the Capitol building. Outside of the Capitol building, there's this big monument there. And there's, I think it's like a picture of some uh, soldiers and it's essentially a monument that talks about memorializing all the soldiers that died during the Civil War, the, you know, the Confederate soldiers that died. And you can see right, I mean, right on there, you can see it says, you know, these soldiers died, you know, for states' rights. And I forgot what else it said, but it, it kind of, in a way, condemned the North for, for this war. I think a lot of people in the South still believe that they were on the right side and that it's about states' rights. And, and, and in my mind, being from the North, I hear it. And all I hear is states' rights equals slavery. Is we wanted to have slavery. It was our right to be able to have slaves. Um, well, I was listening to like, uh, I forget if it was a podcast or something where they talked about the change of mind people had, how they had to essentially propaganda, like fix people's brains into thinking slavery was okay over periods of time. You know, because right. not everyone was on board with it, even in the South in the beginning. And it just became over time that, they, oh, no, this is a totally acceptable and okay thing. Right. And um, I think what blows my mind is, wasn't the Confederacy only a five-year thing? Was yeah, it, it was 1860. Yeah. This five years has been like etched in people. I... I don't know. I think that we can follow Germany's example of how they handled right. Nazism post-World yeah. War II. We yeah. should be following that example. And right. I think that takes people looking inward. Like, let's say, I see systemic racism. I see it's wrong. I want to change. If a lot more people could do that and be like, oh my God, right. this war was, it was fought over owning people. That was yeah. what it was fought over. But <laughs> from this point of view, by not owning what was done, by not like, wanting to pay reparations by not noticing how your actions then affect so many lives now by not like stamping out that hatred you're creating a monster you're creating mm -hmm. this horrible horrible atmosphere for people right. to live in we can't be right. whole until we deal with this it's a festering yeah. wound that needs a new dressing and some penicillin the other thing too is is you know i even for things that are as basic as like confederate um statues down mm -hmm. south right and how a lot of people down south 
think, why do we have to take these statues down? This is part of history. Why are you trying to erase history? And I always get upset by that because to me, statues are different from erasing history. Statues to me means we're commemorating you. Yes. We have a statue up of you because we are commemorating something that you did. I wouldn't make a statue of you unless I wanted to make it. I had to go through, take the time to build a statue of you. I am commemorating you for something I believe that you did. Um, and so when I see a statue of, of that and I think, no, we, we don't, you don't need a statue up to, for historical purposes, okay? It's like going back to Germany. If we were going to talk about historical, like only having statues for historical reasons, Adolf Hitler would have statues, a ton of statues in Germany, because that's history, right? I mean, that's a part of Germany's history. Whether they like it or not, that's a part of the history in Germany. And they don't have Adolf Hitler statues in Germany because he was an evil person. And you look at the Confederacy, and I'm not saying everybody who fought for the Confederacy was an evil person. Yeah, well, I feel like but, they bought into propaganda, the same way people buy into propaganda now and don't think twice about it. <laughs> right. You know? and, and you're not forgetting history just because you don't have a statue up of somebody. That's not forgetting history. There's still textbooks that, you know, nobody's going to take the Civil War out of American history. It's, it's it, more people died in the Civil War. More Americans died in the Civil War than any other war in history in terms of American death rates and death counts. Nobody's going to forget that. You know, it's, it, it's just ridiculous to me. Well, and I do think, like, if you really all want these statues because they're history, why not make a museum, put the statues in them, have plaques explaining things right. <laughs> and explaining why it's like not okay to have these in public. Right. Because I feel like if there was a museum that had like Nazi paraphernalia in it, but the purpose was to say, we don't want this to happen again, right. I, I would be more on board with that. Right. But I'm also not right. a person of color. I have no right to speak on this issue. Yeah. I feel like, and I, this is why I also feel bad because it's like, I am so pro like listening and making changes to make things right and fair for this country. Mm -hmm. But I'm a white person. So like my words don't, I'm a white Jewish person, slightly different. <laughs> I can still be persecuted and murdered for my religion, but right. I'm a white person. Yeah. So I, I don't have a say in this. I, mm -hmm. This is not my call. I respect that my duty is to listen and to be a better ally, whatever that means. Right. Um, but I, yeah, we, things are not okay. Yeah. 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 Um, there, there was another thing about this movie that I thought at some point we should bring up. I don't know if you have it in your notes to bring it up. There was a lot of things that were very progressively brought up in this movie, whether you want to talk about the uncomfortableness of racism or whatever it might be. But another major thing in this movie is abortion, is an abortion. Yes. And the yes. fact that, they, that no abortion is performed in the movie, but there was going to be an abortion performed. Um, they bring up a lot of very uncomfortable topics in this film. Well, and the woman who was going to provide the abortion, she's a cool lady. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. He walks in, she immediately shows him respect. Yeah. She sees him. I, I really liked her presence. I liked mm -hmm. her being there. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, it made me uncomfortable for one second when he's like threatening to take her in and harm business. And I was like, no, yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs> please don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, I like that this all ended up being about like getting a 16 year old girl pregnant. That's yeah. what the whole murder ends up being about. Oh, oh, I wanted to say that too. Did you notice her face? So after there's the scene where she says, Sam, and you know, Tibbs leaves the room and that racist brother's like, ah, this black man knows my sister is pregnant. I must murder him because that's a thing, I guess. Because he clearly lives here. It doesn't, why do you care? Right. Whatever. But if you look at her face, so she's just said, it was Sam. And he's like, did he go too far? 
and what, what's funny is he says he, did he go too far? She never said, it's like she doesn't clarify that it's Sam who went too far, but whatever. She goes, he went too far. They all look away. Everyone at the same time looks away. And if you look mm -hmm. at her face, she's smart. She goes, like, she, she just got away with a secret. She just got away. Yeah. I could yeah. not, I, I looked at her and I was like, oh. They do, they do show a little smirk on her face. She was lying. She got it. Plus, that's like a trope, too. Like, believing the young white woman, the white woman's lying. Like, we just see that with Amy Cooper. <laughs> like, we just right. saw that. But right. yeah, that's like the To Kill a Mockingbird, you know? Yeah. That's the yeah. underlying thing. And but why I, did, what was the, what was her purpose for wanting to get Sam in trouble just because she didn't? They thought he was a perfect fall guy, I think. They okay. realized what was going on. And I think they were like, oh, this guy will take the fall for this. Right. And people already knew that Sam was kind of obsessed with her. She right. already knew that he was. Right. And again, that was all gross too. I mean, him yeah. like spying on her, the fact that she's 16 and everyone's like, ooh. Yeah. To be fair, until they said she was 16, I did not think she was 16. She's 35. Like, right. <laughs> like, like when they said that, I was like, oh, that's where they're going with this? Because they were like, this is a crime. And I was like, what did he do? Like, like she was pregnant. I was like, like, was this a rape? Was this, was this rape? Was this, what was this? Well, you know, she's 16. I was like, that was what it was. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Also, like, if a lady wants to be naked in her house, she should be allowed to be naked in her house. But it is like, you know, I feel it's a lot of, whole, a whole lot messed up. She's not a very yeah. sympathetic character. But yeah. there's no. a lot of, like, very creepy dudes creeping on a 16-year-old. And I, I like to think if she was around now, she would be more liberated and wouldn't have to, like, be yeah. shamed for having sex or wanting to be naked in her home. But she's also, like, terrible, too, so. Yeah. They're all pretty terrible in various ways. I did like her haircut though. And then I went, oh God, my haircut's similar to her, her haircut. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. I still liked um, Mrs. Colbert the best. Lee Grant, she played Mrs. Colbert. And I thought her performance was very lovely. And I did yeah. appreciate like some form of justice in the film. Yeah. Like someone saying this is wrong. And I appreciate yeah. that as a woman. Yeah. <laughs> no, she, yeah. No, I do too. She did a, she did a good job. Yep. I, did like um, I do want to bring up two other things before we like leave, which is yep. you had mentioned their ages earlier, how uh, Rod Steiger and Cindy Portier are both like cops and they're however old they are. Mm -hmm. They're almost the same age in real life. And that blows my mind because I remember thinking Rod Steiger was so old. <laughs> when I yeah. saw he does look older <laughs> yeah. in this movie. Because Cindy Portier is like hot leading man. He is sexy, right? He is like yeah. just a hot guy. And I don't want to just reduce him to like being a hot guy. But yeah, like he's he's like just this very handsome leading man. <laughs> Sarah, don't objectify men, okay? I know. I'm like, I don't want to objectify. <laughs> he's a handsome leading man. He looks ageless, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know how Brad Pitt and Paul Newman, you know how Paul Newman just looks good forever and ever. It's mm -hmm. like that, yeah. right? Right. Rod Steiger, only two years older than him. Looks <laughs> <Yeah>. ancient. <laughs> I the only reason I was able to say that they were like around the same age and doing that was I looked Rod Steiger up and I saw and I saw his age and I was like this was before the movie. I, I just looked him up beforehand. And then I remember watching the movie and thinking, that's Rod Steiger. <laughs> Rod Steiger won Best Actor for this performance. And uh Sidney Poitier had already won in 1963 for Lilith of the Field, which like of course he should have, duh. He should have went away before that for many other films, but that's a whole other thing. So 1967 was the year Cool Hand Luke came out too. And Paul Newman didn't get the Oscar for Cool Hand Luke because Rod Steiger got it for this. I will tell you after watching this movie, I would have given it to Paul Newman. Me too. Thank you. Um, and not that Rod Steiger wasn't good in this, don't get me wrong, but I just didn't think his character was... Usually with Oscar 
winners there's usually like a scene or there's some point where you see like like you see why they want it and this film i, I his, to me like Sidney Poitier if anybody was going to win for this movie it should have been him I agree 100 percent yes. you know he was the one that had the scene you know, you know they call me Mr. Tibbs and and He's personal, you know right he shows a range he shows calm he shows anger he shows feeling he shows everything yeah I, like, I didn't see that much. Right. and again I was su just surprised to hear he wanted for this because it, there wasn't yeah, not that like he, he did give a very good performance like yes not good. that it was a bad performance yeah. or anything else I just was surprised to her because his character wasn't the the character you would typically expect to see win the Oscar I there guess that's a just emotional range there right because we do see we see the anger we see him calm down we see like mm -hmm. various colors but I think yeah. Sidney Poitier shows more colors and then, obviously, we all know I'm partial to Paul Newman. Yeah. Um, we all know this, and meaning my family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a Paul Newman poster above my bed. Oh, you had a Paul Newman poster right over your bed. I sure did. <laughs> I was like, see? <laughs> I can prove it. I've been a nerd a very long time. I was very into Paul Newman. Um, where were we going with this? I forget. There was a whole purpose. Oh, it was this, just uh, that Paul Newman didn't win. Right, that he, yeah. Something. And Rod Snyder won, apparently, because he should have won for The Pawnbroker, but didn't. So this was like a replacement for The Pawnbroker. Paul Newman did a lot of movies in the 60s he could have won for. Yes, he did. Um, also, he was in uh, Paris Blues with Sidney Poitier, and I used to love that movie, too. It's a great movie. I cannot say I've not seen that one. It's lovely. It's like, a, it's like a romantic, sometimes comedy, usually drama. They are musicians, and they're in Paris, and they both fall in love, and Joanne Woodward's in it, so it's Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, you get it's to see them together, it's yeah. fun! Um, yeah, it's like a cool film. The only thing we still haven't really talked about is the two, the big racist scenes where, like, the people go after him, and yeah. how scary that is, and how they were basically gonna, they would have gotten away with it. Like, he doesn't do anything to them when he finds them in this position. Yeah, but I, I was gonna say that, um, this goes back to, you know, the Confederate flag on the, the front license plate area, right? They, that's how you knew somebody was after him because you could see that Confederate flag there. I was going to say it was, it was symbolic, right? That was the, but yeah, like they're, they're ch obviously chasing after him. And, and that was another thing where I didn't really understand why they were chasing after him, but it was explained in the plot of Wikipedia why they were chasing after him, but I didn't pick it up. I didn't pick up that they were sent to... Uh, they're essentially sent by Endicott to either scare him or do more. I, don't I also don't really, I feel like they would have done it anyway. I think what happened is they were not sent by Endicott. They heard what happened. I think that's all it was. They okay. heard what happened. They heard um, Endicott slapped him and he slapped him back. And they were like, that's not going to fly in our side of town. Right, right. Justice to them, quote unquote justice of like being rude to a black person, having them say no. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. They, they had to show that somehow they were superior because clearly they're not superior in their intellects so they somehow had to show their superiority and that was how they did it <sighs> okay here's the thing <laughs> i feel like if okay we teach this in the you know how i do the, like the rose photos program and there's like a male program and a female program and it's for teens and it's about like showing them all they can be in the world right so the part that we do for women is like empowering them and like unteaching some really awful things about life that they've been taught about beauty and about self-esteem right for men the pro program for that focuses for the boys um because they're not men they're boys and girls it's about showing them that life can be bigger and more beautiful than just what you're told it can be you're allowed to feel feelings your life will be richer if you do it's not all about status about having money power and women as objects it's about like enriching your life 
by having real relationships with people, by feeling real feelings, like you're allowed to have those things. And I feel like there's this whole cycle and generate more than a generation of men that have been, that have cut off their feelings, that don't feel feelings. They feel like all they're allowed to feel is anger. They only think about having power and controlling and not understanding that that's not what gives them a full and beautiful life, right? So there's all of this, right, <laughs> but right. it's these men that don't feel, they don't have like feelings. <laughs> They've cut <laughs> off their emotions and they don't know how to process things anymore. And they just have this like need to show that I am better, that I have power. And I need to do that physically by controlling something. And I'm just like, dude, do you understand how much better your life would be if you chilled the hell out? <laughs> like, yeah. you understand how, how much better the world would be, how much better you would feel, whatever. Anyway, no. so that's what I think of when I see right. things like that. I just think like, oh, life could be so much better than this for you. Don't you understand? Right. Whatever. This okay. doesn't need to You're be gonna you. Something. Yeah. It, it's scary. Like that represented the fear. Like right. just living, just existing in the South. Yeah. Being a black man. Just he constantly has to be concerned about, about his life. And, you know, if he makes one misstep, that could be his life. Yeah. And the misstep doesn't have to be anything major. It can just be something tiny. And they're both held to totally different standards. Like him getting arrested in that train station with no proof or anything, you know, versus yeah. like a cop coming up, seeing four white men against one black man trying to hurt him. Nothing happens to them. Right. Even though there was clearly intent to do major harm. Right. Because if that, if table was turned and that was four black guys who were around one white guy trying to defend himself, you think Rod Steiger's care, uh, what's it, Gillespie would have walked in and just been like, hey, what are you guys doing? Yeah, no. It, it he would have just gone out like... It's horrible. Calling for backup and, you know, it's just a different mindset. It's not good. I kept being like, I wonder if they're in the clan too. I bet you they are. They probably all are. That was what I was thinking too. They didn't say I, it in the movie or anything, but. No, but. but no, I, they, I don't think they were sent by Endicott. I think they just heard about what happened and they're so like monstrous and racist that they had to. Okay. Like I need to reread that. And Wikipedia could have been wrong too. And just think about the other people who were going to murder him. So the second group that comes out to murder him mm -hmm. was only coming out because he heard information. Yep. They were going to murder him for hearing information. Think yep. about that. And there was more people coming out that time. There was two cars. Yeah, because there's the people from before. They were yeah. like, great, we get to be racist again. I, I just, it doesn't make sense to me to put that much no. thought and activeness into your racism. Perfect. How do you have that much hatred in your heart to do that? Like, how, like... Do you have nothing better to do with your time than that? It blows my mind. Or just the fact that like, you know, Tibbs wanted to be in the room to hear the story from that 16-year-old that girl and, and her brother. And the brother was like, we're not talking till he leaves the room. Well, and that story ended up tying things together for him. That was how he could solve, solve right, it. Right, that was how he figured it out. Yeah, just almost getting murdered for solving a crime. Thank God he solved the crime in time. Right. And could right. be able to look in her purse. Thank God they listened to him instead of right. Him. That was what I was thinking. Was that, I don't even know how realistic it was that they listened to him. Well, also I think today is even different now too because I feel like when you can see these murders happening and you're like, people are coming up with excuses for this. Yeah. How is that possible? But well, well, it's like with George Floyd. It's this. It was the same thing with um, one of the police officers, not not the police officer, but one yeah. of the other guys who you know was just there and didn't stop mm -hmm. stop him um the the lawyer was on cable news i forgot what network he was on and he said well it can't even be confirmed that this officer's knee was on the man's neck <gasps> what world do you live in like like there was video of this from like a bunch of different angles like you it, it clear as day is there but 
the defense of it, you know? That's the defense of it. And that's the way that's the only reason city saved is that cops apparently have this thing where they're like not gonna not gonna rat on each other even when they do evil things. Right. So like the only thing that saved him was being a cop because they're like, well I guess we can't murder another cop. It's the code, right? It just the whole thing really, really it's so it's so wrong. Like you see it and you're like, that is wrong. We need to fix this. And that's why so many people are I don't People don't want to think critically. They really don't. Oh, oh, it's the idea of not being able to imagine. It's these people that can't imagine any other reality than the one they're living, any other world than the one outside their doorstep. I was just reading Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and I really am enjoying it. And she was talking about how, like, the key to empathy is imagination. Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes is so important. It's the most important thing. So, yeah. yeah. And I say that as someone, we've just been, like, criticizing a lot of, like, groups we've been criticizing like the south we've been criticizing toxic masculinity but i guess at the end of the day i can put myself in their shoes but i can also see like what we need to fix you know this is a very preachy podcast this time i don't know how you can watch this movie and not and not have some judginess and preachiness that comes from it because this podcast like we're not doing this to like just totally rip on the south it's just just these issues tended to come up a lot more in the south yeah. I don't know how else to say it. That's yeah. <laughs> reality. And it's not like the North is perfect by any means. I certainly don't want it to come off that way. It, that, you know, the North has had, we've had a lot of issues up here too. Yeah. Yeah. But, Detroit riots in the sixties, right? Like yeah. caused by unrest, like political unrest. Like it makes right. so much sense. Like <laughs> right. right. It wasn't just, you know, it's not like, you know, racism only happens in the South. Yeah. It's just, it seems like it was more, it would, I would say it's more like systemic in the North. Like, it's hard to take a picture of a red tape law. It's very easy to take a picture of people being ridiculously racist when Black people are sitting in a counter and you're spitting on them. That right. is, you take a picture of that. That's very right. overt. So, it's yeah. just the, the difference. Yeah, you're that's right. That's very overt. <laughs> like, we could yes. do that. Right. I also wrote, why would anyone want to watch a TV show about Gillespie? The fact that there's a TV Right. Show. <laughs> it went on for a long time, too. Right? Tibbs must have been a character in it, though, right? I remember it being on TV when we were kids. Like, I remember being like when you go to bed and the tv would just be on and they'd be like commercial for in the heat of the night or like the opening of in the heat of the night and then mom would be like and would turn it off yeah. that time. you know that kind of thing yeah i i don't really i just know like i knew it was a tv show i'd heard it was a tv show i didn't know anything about it i really didn't know anything about this movie until you told me we were gonna watch it and i was like oh also we haven't been saying gillespie enough what a name i love that name gillespie, Good name. gillespie. oh i ralph did it it was ralph Ralph did Ralph. it, of fucking course, is what I wrote in my notes. Yeah, yeah, Ralph. of course so he did it. Nice normal name. And again, he and did it because he what? wanted to get a job, and that's also uh, what doesn't. It make wasn't sense. really clear to me. Yeah, because in the end, he's like, "I didn't mean to kill him," and I'm like, "Uh, I think you did," um, <laughs> because yeah. the gist that I was getting from it was he killed him so he could steal the money so he could get the abortion. That's what the gist I got. Is that correct? Okay. That would make sense. That would make sense. Maybe he thought he was hit. This is what I don't get. If you did not mean to kill him, you were going to hit him over the head and steal his money and expect him not to remember that you were the last person he saw? Mm-hmm. That doesn't add up to me. Right. Yeah, he was I mean, give him a job. Right. Do you, so, like, the question is, did he really go there requesting a job? Or did he go there because he knew that guy was rich and... I mean, in my mind, to rob I think him. he made a split second decision of like, I can rob him and get this money. I, like, could, I could go there and ask for a job and have to work hard and, you know, yeah. 
or I could just grab them. Again, it's kind of a toxic white male thing, just feeling so entitled. I'm not yeah. saying that about you, I'm talking about toxic masculinity. Again, there's yeah. a difference between toxic masculinity and masculinity. Here's my other question. Why would he put the body, like he moved the body and like he left it in the open. Like you can say it was down an alleyway, but it was still kind of, it was in the open because it was like at the beginning of the alleyway. Like why would you leave a body in the open like that? I think it was, he wanted it. So he left money in that wallet. So he wanted it to get discovered and he wanted whoever discovered it to be caught. And he would have been, if Mr. Tibbs was not there, the wrong man would have gone to jail for that crime. Yeah. Because there was someone that did steal that wallet because it had money in it. That was yeah. actually a very smart, premeditated killer kind of move. Right, like, right, right. You can be like, I didn't mean to do it, but that's pretty well thought out for a very quick murder. Yeah. Also to right. point out, he was back at his job, what, an hour later? Like, yeah. cool as a cucumber, hiding pie from an officer, being a fucking psychopath, killing a fly right, right after right. he murders someone. So let's just point that out. <laughs> that's, that's actually a good point. Because that because they were at the diner right before he went off on his little trip to go, you know, be the gross little peeper. And then and then finding the body on the alleyway after that. So it changes that man's whole perspective. So when he's like hiding the pie from the cop, he's also like, I'm getting away with murder. Right. Like he had just gotten away with it. Yeah. And he, again, he would have, if Mr. Tibbs had not been there, two of the wrong people would have gone to jail. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it was just one, I guess. Cause the well, I guess it would have been the first guy. It would have been the guy who uh, was the left-handed guy. Yes. And then maybe not, maybe if they did end up realizing he was left-handed, then it would have been Sam. But they, yeah, that was, I got to tell you, though, I don't think so. I don't think so, because this is actually one of my notes I wrote down, is that the police clearly don't care about getting the right person, that they don't care about that. Their goal is as long as they get somebody and they can justify that, I don't think they really even looked that closely into it. It didn't get the impression that they did. Getting the right person is too much work. How can right. we make us look good at our jobs? We caught somebody. We caught somebody and we can feel good about it. We caught somebody. We can justify catching them. And well, it could have, I mean, could it have been somebody else? I don't know. I don't want to get more facts. If I don't get more facts, then I'm right. Our egos saying we've found this person is right. more important than the truth. And you just reminded me of what it takes. So the big thing about now, how people are like defund the police, to me, what defund the police means is you're, you're starting over and you're beginning new different programs that are more relevant to the problems that you're solving that would be like better than sending a police person who's been trained for six months out to do every single job that they should not be doing, right? Like they don't know anything about social work. Why are you sending into social work situations? The, the thing that blew my mind is to become a police officer doesn't only take six months. Because yeah. you see that in this film where it's like, they, they aren't set up for this. They've never really had a murder. They don't know what they're doing. Like, <laughs> yeah. there is a problem in the system. And if you're part of that system, you should be like, oh my God, there is a problem. How do we fix this? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I was just thinking about that when I was watching this because I was thinking they're not trained for this. There are police chiefs out there who have said we shouldn't be doing all this stuff. Yeah. This is a taxing, this is taxing to our, our department. We, we yeah. don't want to be doing this stuff. I think you'll find a lot of police officers who would say, good, we don't want, like, we don't want to yeah. do some stuff. Like, this is it, not stuff that we enjoy. And better ways to do this program. And yeah. that's what we should be doing, finding like more efficient, better ways to do things. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I wrote, he killed Mr. Colbert for an abortion. So this whole movie is about like an unwanted pregnancy. Oh, so yeah, if maybe you had provided like some education and condoms, they wouldn't have been in the situation or whatever. Okay. <laughs> You're talking about the South there in the okay. 60s? If you gave mm -hmm. condoms, there wouldn't be a murder. Actually, um, that's not like the South in the 60s. That's everywhere in the 60s. <laughs> oh, I wrote, can't stop the white superiority and it's bullshit because I wrote that right about when he was, when they were having this drinking moment and he still had to put him in his place. It, which isn't his place, but you know what I mean. Like, Sidney yeah. is way beyond everything that Gillespie yeah. is. 
Um, but I should call him Mr. Tibbs more too. I just love saying Poitiers. But yeah, that, that really, fancy. it was a chance for him to show that he had changed and he didn't change enough. Like he had yeah. changed, he allowed him in his space, which was huge. Cause he says, I've never allowed anyone in my space before. Yeah. Um, which is a big deal. But then, yeah, the fact that he still had to put him in his place, what he thought yeah. of his place really bothered me. Right. And the only moment they have at the end is like them smiling at each other on the train. And I was like, is right. this Murder, She Wrote? Because this happened on Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where Murder, She Wrote got it from. Maybe. Two people like smiling at yeah. each other on the train. Like, yeah. the murder is all. Smile. Yeah. Um, I will say I did not like the ending of this movie. I didn't like that ending. I don't think Sidney Poitier really had a... You're right. I didn't think Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> that's so um, fun to say Sidney Poitier, right? Yeah. I didn't think he really had a reason to smile back at him. I, I don't, for everything that he went through, I guess, yeah, um, no, Gillespie did, did save his life on, on that one occasion when um, you had those four, those four guys who were clearly going to try and hurt him. There were times like that, but then you look at other times and you're like, I don't really think Mr. Tibbs had a reason to. Well, I don't think Gillespie earned that smile. Like even near the end of the movie when, when they were talking about both being lonely and, you know, kind of being police officers their job and Gillespie's response back to him like you said like don't get smart with me black boy yeah which is like come on like there's right. never a moment after that either really so no. we're going from that moment to the end of the movie and the only reason they have them smile at each other is to show like people at home like look we can all get along right and you know what else there was the Amber Ruffin thing on um Seth Meyers where she did that like movie preview it, it was like hidden figures but it was not do you remember that did you watch it I'll send I never it. saw that. It's really funny. It's like a, a fake movie trailer for like all of the movies that were coming out around a certain time that were kind of like hidden figures. And she, she plays like the pretend main character and she does have that speech about like, for some reason, even though you white racist person have been mean to me and rude to me the whole time, I somehow feel like I need your respect. And right. like, oh, you don't need, in real life, I'd be like, oh, you're an ass. I don't need your respect. Screw you, yeah. So, right. you know, that that's kind of how I felt about yeah. it. But. It was like the Hollywood ending for the people at home. Like, we solved it. Do you have any other thoughts before? Because we're about to wrap up pretty soon. Thanks. Hopefully you can hear me in this. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Can you even imagine? If you, if you can't, so be it. It's still a fun conversation. Well, most of it was fun. Part of it was, like, real deep. Well, look, uh, got upset. Like, I was watching it and I was upset. I texted you. I was like, this is making me so upset. Like, I'm so upset watching this. It's so hard to watch. Yeah. Because the hate, because of the right for no reason that should not exist. That is so right. stupid. I wish people just didn't didn't but carry also, that. You're in the midst of an excellent man. Appreciate him. My God. Yeah. Right. How would I feel if I met this super cool dude? Yeah. Right. It's like, hey, there's a homicide in your town. And how lucky are you that a homicide expert just fell into your lap because you were racist? Right. And you can't even treat it. Like, how lucky are you? You do not right. know how to handle this. He's the only person that knows what's going on. He consistently tells you what is going on and you choose to ignore mm -hmm. it repeatedly right. and only keep him around when you are absolutely forced to and then get mad when he doesn't want to stay because you treat him like garbage. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And the one time he went off on the wrong track because of his own personal issues, he was able to admit that and see past it. Yep. And move on and find the correct <laughs> killer in a very short amount of time, yeah. can we just say. Yes. And also, I did love the scene when he's taken to that Black family um, to, like, stay with them and get the car. And, well, to get the car, but then to stay with them. Right. I loved those moments because there was there's that moment where you get worried. Where you're like, oh, no, is he not going to be accepted by the Black community here? Like, are right. they going to pull this, like, you're too white for us or whatever it is. Right. Like, you're hanging with the white people. Oh, God, to see, like, acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> 
that was nice. Oh, please don't add that layer. Please don't add that layer. Okay. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. You don't need to be worried. We don't need to worry about his life for the entire movie. And then, like seeing the children look up to him. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was beautiful. Okay, so that was great. I do want to talk a little about Sidney Poitier before we go. First, first of all, he was actually born in the United States. He was born two months early in Miami. He was not necessarily supposed to be born here. He he lived in the Bahamas his most of his life till he was fifteen. He got sent to the States by his parents because he apparently was like acting out a lot and they were worried he was going to become like a bad seed in their town, you know? Oh, wow. He grew up in a largely um, African community. So he, that's, he has this like poise and confidence in himself. He grew up in a place where he is accepted as he is, you know, like I don't have to be right. anyone's box. I don't have to be subservient to like, none of the systemic mm -hmm. bullshit was placed around him. You know what I mean? Yeah. He grew up in a place where he could be his self, you know? And so he comes to the U.S., sees, like, racism, and it's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, What's happening here? Yeah. yeah. And ends up moving to New York. He does a lot of menial work. He eventually, I think, he joined the army for a little bit. I need to learn about that. I don't remember. Um, and eventually, around, I don't know, maybe 20, he finds acting. And he, he auditions for, I wrote down a company. It's for the American Negro Theater. And he was rejected so adamantly that he was like, okay, no, I'm, no, I refuse this rejection. He, he had an accent. So he worked yeah. on his accent and he worked on performing. And six months later, um, he got in. And that's like what started his acting career. And he was seen in a production of Liz Estrada. And this works with the segment. I do a segment each time that I sometimes forget to do. And I think about what, I love to, I love to plan a double feature. <laughs> I love to think about like, mm. what do I want to watch next after I've seen this movie? What would pair well with this? So I would say if you watch this film, The Perfect Pair, is, uh, I would say, Raisin in the Sun, which is another Sidney Poitier film based on a play. It's fantastic. Like, check it out. So that one, um, that's really I actually have seen that movie, so I can, I can also say that was a very good movie. I'm so sad because I was supposed to see it last year at TCM Fest. When I say supposed to, I mean, like, I really wanted to, but it was mm -hmm. sold out because I oh. never buy the pass because I don't have that kind of money. So I show up and try to do the, where they do, like, the walk-in kind of. And they, it was too packed. They wouldn't let me in. Yeah. So I saw, so I saw Working Girl instead. <laughs> when you think equal films, Working Girl, <laughs> same thing. Pretty anyway. much. Uh, but yeah, Raising the Sun, great film, great Sidney Poitier performance. And then another film I would recommend is his first like big film role, which is called um, I don't know where I put it. Oh, No Way Out. That's what it's called. Um, it's a really good movie. <laughs> so <laughs> No Way Out. It's from 1950. It's his first big film role. He plays a doctor that has to do like a life-saving procedure on these racist, two racist men who are like known racists and one of them dies in the procedure. And it's like about the reckoning of that, that the town has with him. And it's, it's, it's um, I think it's directed by Joseph Fangowitz, who is, I'm a huge fan of, he directed All About Eve. It's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, check that one out too. So those would be my perfect pairs that go with this. And now we also know a little bit about Sidney Poitier. And yeah, he just has this like grace about him. And I hate that he has to be so perfect. Do you know what I mean? Like to be accepted mm -hmm. yeah. as a black man on film, as a leading man, he had to be perfect. And that, that yeah. kills me because we need like to see a range of things. I feel this way about women in film a lot too. Now, it's not the same thing, but I feel like women have to be a certain trope. Right. And we need more. We need more leading men like him, more diversity. But yeah, he's, I just love him. It was a, it was a movie that was, it was a good watch, especially for the time that we're in right now and just everything that's going on. So I thought it was, I just thought overall it was a very, it was a very good film.
it was definitely well worth it. I agree. I'm really glad we watched it. I feel yeah. very like militant in my speech about things. Um, but at the same time, it's like you, when you see hate, you got to root it out. Like, again, we were taught this. As I said this in the last podcast. We were taught this as Jewish kids. Like, we cannot let the Holocaust or anything like it happen again. Right. And you have to be aware of certain behaviors, aware of certain things yes. that are happening, where you have to root out that stuff. Otherwise, it right. occurs. And I see it happening in our country, and I don't know how to root it out other than vote. <laughs> right. So, like, anyway. Right. You, and that's like, yeah, history, you have to remember history, because history is doomed to repeat itself if you don't which is why we will never forget the Confederacy. Well, as much as people say we're trying to get rid of that history, yeah. we will never try to get rid of that history because we, we can't forget it. Well, and if you see it in yourself, look inside yourself. If you see hate yeah. or violence or like these things inside of yourself, do your best to root it out, even right. if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Again, preachy. It's important. Yeah, okay, so I'm really glad we watched this. It was really good. David, thanks mm -hmm. for coming on and talking with me. You're the best. I was happy to do it. Such a good a Fun person. talk. It's been a fun time. I had a good time. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and I did forget one other thing I want to talk about, which are yeah. Rod Steiger's yellow sunglasses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the yellow sunglasses and then the beefy arms. He kept doing that chewing gum thing. And oh, yeah. And his arms up and he's like, look at my, my muscles. Yeah, look at my muscles. Look at it. And that just tickled my little, my mm -hmm. little face. That was great yeah. character work, I think. That was really smart. That showed us yeah. exactly who Gillespie is. You've got a very strong picture. Yeah. I loved all right. those but that just, yeah. came. the yellow sunglasses. The yellow sunglasses were a nice little, nice kind of fit for. Really were. This is the cherry on top for his character. Oh, and let's talk about the title again. For In the Heat of the Night, I like that that's the title because it means not just like it's hot and he gets here at nighttime and this crime happens at night. It also is a way of like expressing like sexual intimacy and this whole crime happens because of sexual intimacy in the heat of the night. That's a very good detail. I never thought about it that way. Because I actually was wondering about like why they titled it in the heat of the night. But that's definitely kind of a double entendre. Entendre. Thank you. You're welcome. But yeah, and this was recorded, I should say, like in June of 2020. So that's what's going on right now. Yeah. David, thank you for being a great guest. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bye. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.